This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome back to this latest instalment of your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe, and today we're taking a close look at how people made a physical mark on history through graffiti. Although we tend to think of graffiti as a relatively modern phenomenon, the impulse to scratch, scrawl and draw on walls and buildings is nothing new, and there are plenty of examples at English Heritage sites. It's this history that Emma Brining is exploring as part of her PhD, and we can welcome her to the podcast now. Hello. Hello. And with her to discuss its history is Kevin Booth. Hello there. Who is a senior curator at English Heritage. And of course, this is a fascinating subject, which really does require some unpicking. So sketching out this outline of our topic, Kevin, when we think of graffiti at English Heritage sites, what sort of forms does the graffiti take? And also, where can it be found? Pretty much everywhere across our sites. Uh, You'll find it inside buildings, you'll find it outside, you'll find it etched or written onto stone, onto timber, onto plaster, onto even objects in the collection. It might be down in the basement, it might be at the top of the higher spiral stair. A high status space, a back room area, it can appear as a clandestine effort or as a very public declaration. Yeah, inscriptions, they're pretty much everywhere. They rarely appear to be random. There's always some sort of context behind the location that's been chosen, the type, the message that's being broadcast. In terms of form, scratched or inscribed into a material, uh, which might be a, a hasty scratch or it might be intricately carved. Graffiti are written, again, it can be a very hasty scribble or it can be quite a you know an extensive tract. There are some beautiful drawings, there are some remarkable cartoons. There's even graffiti made with the soot from candles using templates on the ceiling of a barrack block. Mostly, you know, what form does it take? Well, mostly it's it's structured, it has intent, it has a message to it. But this is a record that's, it's ephemeral, it's transient. Much of what may once have been written has probably been lost and we're in danger of, of losing more of it. So it's a really sort of timely a finite resource, if you like, that it's timely that we're taking more attention of. And it's a snapshot of time, isn't it? But that time is sort of gradually being rubbed away uh, through temporal processes, through I suppose. Through that process of decay that, uh, yeah, and, you know, in the current climate times, uh, that is speeding up. So there is a sort of developing urgency, in a way, to tackle a lot of what is, as we'll find out hopefully during the podcast, a, you know, extraordinary archival record of its own right. Yes. Uh, who is creating this graffiti then, and, and when, broadly speaking? There's a very wide range, I would say, of people. You might categorise it a little as people who are visitors to a site, however we define them. You know, they might be formal visitors who come as tourists, or they might be people who have scaled the walls and got in when they shouldn't have done. But there's also the people who occupied site. I'm thinking of soldiers in particular. There are a number of military fortresses where you've got the idle records of the garrison scribbled onto the guardhouse walls, or indeed a country house where it's been requisitioned in the Second World War. We've got an outpouring of of soldiers' accounts in the sort of 1940-44 period. There are prisoners, there are administrators and, and workers, people recording utility facts about the amount of tins that they might have or, or whatever it is. So the who's quite wide. The when, I'd say the record across the age sites broadly is is a sort of late 18th century onwards. And at any site you'll see spikes and gaps in the record as dependent on the, the use of the site or fashions at the time. But if you look on a, a sort of micro level of, of when these inscriptions being made, you see some that are there in the the long hours of solitude, perhaps, in in your cell, or the long hours of boredom as a a guard or a soldier biding his time. You see graffiti that's created over a period of days when someone must be returning and returning to the same spot to continue their work, or that's a very, I don't know, sort of rushed, furtive scribble as people are not quite sure where they ought to be there doing what they're doing. So it's a very, very broad record that comes from a wide range of impetus, and it, but it is fascinating. 
And what is that impetus then? What causes someone to want to mark an interior or the outside of a building or a tree in the grounds or any other object? Emma and I were discussing this earlier and um, I think Emma used the word to me, uh, communication, the idea of communication. And I I think that's it. There is an apparent need, desire, impetus to record your presence, your identity, to outline your beliefs or your your tastes or the, the things culturally that you're attached to. But there's also a sort of adding to a correspondence that's already there or an echo of, of the cultural sort of world you live in. There are ideas and motifs of the time that are spread there. Perhaps sometimes even just an idea that what you're doing is in some way enhancing the place that you're at. Rarely, I would say, do we see graffiti as as a real sort of act of despoilation, an intent to damage, perhaps. Emma, do you think that's a fair account? What do you think, Emma? Yeah, I would say, um, just to reiterate Kevin's point, that people throughout time have been making graffiti for a variety of reasons, but communication being key, even if it's with an imagined audience, they don't know who's going to be reading the graffiti in the future but they're making a mark of their presence or expressing a particular opinion they have, whether that's prisoner graffiti or detainee marks because they are expressing their social and political views, or it's, as Kevin was talking about, his uh, historic tourist or visitor graffiti, where they just want to mark a presence to say, I was here or we were here if it's a group, and record that moment in time. It's interesting that, isn't it? It's it's a bit like, why why do journalists write news? Uh, Why does anyone record anything? Why do people write a diary? You know, why do people write letters and keep them? All those sorts of things. It's it's all about communication, as you've been describing. Also, why do school children mark desks with I was ear spelt I-W-O-Z and then ear spelt spelt wrongly as well? So um, (laughs) it's a really interesting idea, this idea of communication, isn't it? And um, communicating something in the present that will eventually travel into the future in a way, be seen by people in the future, which will then relate to their past. So I think that's really interesting. So looking at examples of graffiti at English heritage sites, where can visitors find historic graffiti? You know, if you had a few sites that you could list and uh, and what kind of graffiti they are, etc. Belsa Hill, Northumberland, I mentioned requisitioned houses in the Second World War were just at the point of uncovering and recovering a whole load of soldier graffiti, some of it quite formal, some of it very, very playful at Belsay. We see that in uh, military places like Carlisle and at Richmond also. So where soldiers have been involved in a site, you can perhaps see not dissimilar patterns emerging. There are sites in the north like uh, Thornton Abbey, North Lincolnshire, where there is just a mass outpouring across mainly the 19th century of initials and little little pictures, mainly mainly initials and dates across the Great Gatehouse in the areas that were accessible at that time. It hadn't been refloored at that time, so people only got to certain bits, and goodness, did they use those bits to their greatest extent. The other site, perhaps I'm I've been really involved with in the past down at Dover Castle. So the great keep at Dover Castle, again, lovely soft calm limestone. So really fine grained, excellent to carve, gives you a lovely crisp detail. And we have a record of prisoners from the 18th century, French prisoners who were held in that building. And they've downloaded their names, their images of ships, their religious motifs all across that building. Another castle in Kent, Deal Castle, which we visited on the podcast, that's got some graffiti as well, I believe. Although I, I didn't see it when I was there with uh, historian Paul Patterson, I must admit. That's on the roof, isn't it? There's, there's graffiti in the, in the lead work on the roof. And that's something that if you go to your local parish church and it has a lead roof and you, you were to get up, you will often find, particularly on the tower tops where people would go and use it as a vantage point, you'll see graffiti, the shapes of people's hands, the outline of people's feet, perhaps with their initials then marked in it, marked into the lead roofs. And Deal has some of that, and there's one or two other EH sites who have some of that lead work as well. Any other examples from you, Emma? Yeah, I mean, I have lots of examples that I could give, but I'll just maybe focus on some of my favourite graffiti. 
that I've seen. So just about Dior Castle, unfortunately, if you if you go, you're unlikely to be able to see it, as Kevin mentioned, because it's on the, the roof. I even had to get special permission to be able to actually photograph some of it and even other bits I couldn't access myself. But it's a lot of workers' graffiti left on the roof. So there's ships, a drawing of a sun and a human face, an outline of a hand and foot, and lots of marks left by those carrying out repairs on the windows or leadwork on the roof. Another favourite of mine that Kevin has, has briefly mentioned is the soldiers' graffiti at Berwick-upon-Tweed Castle and Main Guard in Northumberland, in the northeast of England, where a series of smoke drawings can be found created by soldiers from the 18th century. And these provide an insight into the everyday lives of men living in the barracks. And the smoke graffiti includes names and dates, as well as drawings of buildings, women, shoes and animals. And interestingly, these are quite unique because they were made using candle smoke and stencils. And they really, really are just incredible to see. I also really like looking at workers' graffiti. So I've mentioned an example of that already at Deal. But very recently at Brodsworth Hall and Gardens in South Yorkshire, in the north of England, where I'm doing a placement at the moment, completely unrelated, but we found graffiti in the stables, likely left by gardeners working on site. So even when doing something completely different, you can find graffiti at a variety of English heritage sites. Yes, including the Jewel in the Crown of Stonehenge in southwest Wiltshire in the in the south of England, where I Wren has been carved into one of the standing stones, the Sarsen stones there, by presumably, and we're not quite sure, Sir Christopher Wren, the architect behind St Paul's Cathedral in London, uh, which we covered on a recent podcast. So I think that's quite an important one. Of course, English Heritage is, is very keen, isn't it, Kevin, to make sure that visitors respect the stones and just stand in the stones when if they have that opportunity. Important qualification there, thank you, yes. So that's a, a good list of and a good overview of where you can find graffiti and the different types and the way it's been applied as well. What's the earliest historic graffiti then that remains visible at an English heritage site? Is it hard to quantify? It's very difficult, I think. I mean, you can have the context and you can know from that, you can maybe potentially date it. So if you know it's been used at a particular period of time, it might give you an idea, but it can be notoriously difficult to date graffiti. It is very handy, though, when the graffitist or the mark maker leaves a date behind, and that can often be assumed that that's the date that they left their mark. So the, the oldest piece that I've seen that's dated to where, where the year has been left is at Elton Palace on the outskirts of London, where 1634 MS can be found near a door outside the Great Hall, and that was the start of a period of decline for the site. That's an early one. That is that really was, early, yeah. That palace belongs to Henry VIII, did it not, and even preceded him? Yes. I trump Emma, not with a dated one, but there's an inscription at Gainsborough Old Hall. It says, Trust Truth Only, and is signed P. Tyrrett. And Tyrrett is a, an interesting name with links to the then owners of Gainsborough Old Hall in the mid-16th century. P. Tyrrett possibly is Philip Tyrrett, whose brother Robert was part of Henry VIII's court and circle, and Henry VIII visited Gainsborough in 1541. So there's just a chance that Mr. Turret was writing just truth only as Henry and his retinue came through uh, his aunt's property. But we can go back older. You know, we have Roman pottery, for instance, with graffiti on it often to say, this is my dish, my bowl, but sometimes to say, you know, this is such and such, I am the slave effectively, the property of someone else. You get very interesting graffiti on Roman ceramics. That's really interesting because we sort of have parallels in the modern world today. I'm sure there are people listening who work in an office where everyone's got their name on a mug. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> We haven't really changed, really, over the centuries. In relation to that, what is the most recent historic graffiti at an English heritage site? Probably one we haven't yet seen. Who knows what was written last night, Emma? Yeah, no. I think with graffiti, often it does continue, sadly, up to the present day of people leaving marks. Even when I've been maybe doing a few weeks of recording at a site, I found one that's probably been left during that period of time that I've been there by someone else, obviously. And it's now obviously considered a problem, and we'll talk about that a bit later on. But in terms of a more recent mark, which has research interest, there's a piece at Kirby Hall, which I found, which contains a bit of an element of social history. 
and it states P. Grantham Kettering at 1981. The recession is getting worse, referring to a period of recession in the UK. And I think that's quite interesting. And that's a relatively recent mark, but it still reveals marked a particular important moment in time for someone. So yes, that's uh, just over 40 years old then, isn't it? Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire, and we'll get onto that in more detail. This opens up a quick question then about when graffiti becomes historic. So how old does a piece of graffiti need to be in order for it to be important and noticeable to historians like yourselves? I'm happy to leave the most challenging question. (laughs) Let's ask the PhD student first. Em, what do you think? I really think there's there's no distinctive particular answer to this and I certainly wouldn't want to say from my position that there's one point I think it's something that we kind of all work on together to decide when it becomes historically important but I think if it shows after a period of time a sense of survival it's lasted as as Kevin talks about graffiti is notoriously ephemeral it often doesn't last and its historic value does increase with each year it kind of survives But when I've talked to visitors on site, I often have a chat with people when I'm recording. And a common comment which gets mentioned is that if it's before their lifetime, multiple people have said this to me, if it's before that person's lifetime, then they would be inclined to consider it historic. And obviously that's really dependent on the individual and shows that we have our own personal different understanding of the past. So for me, that might be, I'd say like 1980s, but other people might go back much further because of this idea of graffiti being something that's quite naughty if it's before their time then they kind of think okay then now it's past it's got this importance but then we can also think about a contemporary archaeological perspective so research considering the most recent past and we might consider any mark then through an historic lens and that's something that might be quite controversial for some particularly when we don't want marks being left and it's important to note that marks increase the historic value increases with their age But if graffiti is connected to a big global event, it may gain value through that association, even if it's just been made, because it's a marker of that particular time. And lots of people might think about marks that they made during the COVID-19 pandemic, such as chalk drawings or markings outside their houses, and they were marking a particular moment. So in that way, they're already historically important. It's really interesting, isn't it? The difference between contemporary values and then what become historic values. And the sort of interplay between the two and the conflict between the two as well, depending on your values. So one place that we've mentioned already is Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire. And we can talk about that property in a bit more detail with regard to its graffiti collection. So what graffiti can be seen at Kirby? Oh, a whole variety of marks found at Kirby. But a lot of them are created by historic visitors and tourists who've gone, whether on official tours or maybe illicitly or when the site's been uninhabited for periods of time. And through examining these, you gain an insight into the interactions between Kirby Hall and its visitors over about two and a half centuries. So what spaces were people able to access? Where did they feel comfortable at different points of time leaving their mark? What did they decide to leave behind as a memento of their visits? And lots of these are names, dates, initials, places, referring to the mark maker and the period of time that they left their mark. And as I've already mentioned, there's some social commentary, as well as lots of drawings as well. So faces, there's some trowels as well. Lots of animals. Interestingly, ducks is quite a common animal that was made. I don't know why. And a a game of noughts and crosses as well on the site. Wow. So if you're looking at a particular area of a room, for example, can you see quite a lot of them close together on a beam, for example, or something like that. Yeah, so there's particular areas on the site where there's a concentration of marks. And what I think that probably is, and it happens at a lot of sites, is that once someone has left a mark, someone later gets conspired maybe by the idea, or they see a sense of permission to be able to leave it. And so you see them almost layered on top of each other, like a palimpsest of marks. So the attic, for example, is covered in in graffiti, as well as other certain spaces around the site. And these marks are just made on top of each other or right next to one another. And so, like I say, people have been inspired by someone else previously to leave a mark. And it's another type of conversation that people are happening. Oh, this previous person's left theirs. I'm going to leave mine too. Kevin, it's worth letting listeners know that Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire is partly ruined, isn't it? So that has an effect, I think, perhaps on the 
graffiti that's been left? Well, Emma may know this more than I. I mean, it, it's got a long history of ruination, I think, Emma, and of being this sort of semi-viable property and a place that people do visit for its sort of romantic characters. Does the environment then, with some of it being open to the elements and some of it not, affect the survivability of the graffiti in question? It really does. So, for example, there's certain marks that I don't know how long they're really going to last for because of the stability of the surface that they've been left on. So, for example, in the in the gatehouse on one side, there's a piece of plaster where lots of people have written in pencil or scratched into it. And that's kind of chipping away. You can see the edges. So some of the graffiti's at threat. And on the other side of the gatehouse, there's nothing. There's no plaster. So it's likely that that's come off at a particular point whether that's because someone's, you know, people have left graffiti already or or it's never had that opportunity to have a mark left on it. But people find ways and places to leave marks and various surfaces to leave them behind. And and what you find with the more modern and contemporary marks is they're often in places that are more hidden away. So people kind of know that they're not supposed to be leaving it, whereas the more um, historic marks are often in places that are quite visible Someone would have seen them if they were walking around, leaving their mark behind. And they're very deeply carved as well. So they've taken a lot more time. And it shows it probably wasn't as much of an issue at that point. And did the graffiti increase because of the fact that Kirby Hall is ruined? Because of the number of visits in the time that it sort of became this tourist attraction? Yes. So there seems to be a trend of when the Finch Hatton family, who owned the site in the 18th and 19th century when they weren't on site people were leaving marks behind so if they're away or a particular family member wasn't using the site for very much then people were starting to leave graffiti but there's a there's a big increase in marks from the 1860s up until the 1880s and this is a period of time when these informal tours were happening people were visiting the site and having a look around at this romantic ruin and then in the 1880s official tours were introduced by the Earl of Winchelsea in Nottingham. And then there seems to be a drop in the number of marks. So maybe when the owner's likely to be more on site and there's more protection, people aren't leaving their graffiti behind as much. For these markings, what sort of time period are we talking about? Can you trace when they were left to the present day? So if people have left dates, that's very handy. And I'm very grateful to the historic graffitis for doing that. (laughs) <laughs> um, and the earliest I found was 1757 that was dated and it's TB 1757 and it's found in a niche next to the original entrance to the site and it was left during the ownership of Viscount William Seton Hatton who preferred to live in London rather than at Kirby Hall and then the next marks are dated, there's two, there's WC 1771 which has been left twice and this was found after William's successor Edward Finch Hatton left Kirby Hall to live at Eastwell Park in Kent. So as the family aren't there, people are leaving graffiti behind. And then we see them all the way up to the present day. So there was a a family who left a mark in 2021 on the inside of a fireplace. So you can stick your head up and you can see it. And unfortunately, that that is an issue that someone's left that in the present present day. But it will still form a part of this, this record of graffiti at Kirby. And we can think about also the places that people are leaving marks behind now and think about how we can discourage them from doing that in the future. Yes, I'm presuming, Kevin, that perhaps it would be necessary to maybe create some signage or something like that. Well, you could have on those dreadful little sort of icon things that you pepper your guardianship panel with to say, don't draw on the monument. But I think you have to hope that we're communicating a sort of sense of who we are, what our values are, and and that especially through things like our membership and this podcast, perhaps cultivating a sense of respect for those monuments and enjoyment of how they are as you find them and not as you might perhaps leave them. So, Emma, how did you go about starting your research? Because, uh, you know, it's a really interesting subject once you get into the nitty gritty of it, isn't it? I mean, how do you uh, record and analyse all these different markings? Yeah, so first thing I had to do was, was decide which site I wanted to look into in a lot of depth. And I'd heard that there are a lot of tourist marks at Kirby Hall, and I thought that was a really interesting subject. So I decided to look into this particular site, There'd also been a mason mark survey. So these are individuals who left marks when building the site to record who'd done what work so they could get paid accordingly. 
And so I thought that'd be a really nice, interesting uh, set of data for the graffiti alongside the mason marks. So in, in 2021 and into 2022, I conducted a full site survey of the graffiti at Kirby Hall. So that means it wasn't limited to any particular area. I tried to cover as many areas as I possibly could get access to, taking into account obviously safety precautions. And there were some limitations, such as the fact that I had to record from ground level, meaning that it's unlikely I found every single mark. I think that was, would be quite a challenge to do, but I found, I'd say, the majority. And during this process, I found over 2,700 graffiti at Kirby Hall. It was quite overwhelming. I didn't expect to find that much, and it took a lot longer than I expected to. I then recorded these, so I would write down the type of mark that it was, if it was text, what they'd written, if it was drawn, a description of what it was, what material it was made onto, what people had used to make the mark, and then photographed all of these graffiti as I was going through the recording process. I basically spent a lot of time looking at walls and sticking my heads up fireplaces, which (laughs) wasn't the most glamorous, but it is fun. It's very fun. And then after this process was completed and I'd recorded all of these marks I could found, I was then able to compare the data. So consider the types of marks that were made, the quality of the graffiti, where they were made on site, if there are any dates included, and kind of consider a timeline of graffiti across Kirby Hall. If places were mentioned, it's very local places that tend to be mentioned at Kirby, which shows that it was local visitors coming to the site a lot of the time. Were any of the graffiti connected to one another? So were they made on the same date or by the same person or maybe even had the same surname? And then also to research some of the individual marks themselves. So could I connect them to any other historic records to try and identify the mark maker with their mark? Did you come up with any conclusions about those questions? I did, yeah. I came up with quite a few conclusions. So I was able to trace some of the individuals and also just kind of think about a spatial analysis of the site. So were there particular areas in which more graffiti was being left? So I've talked about the attic, that there's a lot of graffiti there. And this isn't a space that's accessible to the public at the moment because of safety issues. But there was a period where a lot of graffiti was created in the attic between the 1860s and the 1880s. And interestingly, I mentioned the formal tour started towards the end of that period, but also a poster was put up by the agent of the Earl of Winchelsea in Nottingham, asking people not to deface the site or write their name. So they knew it was a problem then. And so there's kind of a decrease at that time. But again, in the attic, there's another increase later, almost 100 years later, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, where a group of apprentices were using the attic as their own personal space for their breaks. And they've left behind lots of drawings. This is where the duck graffiti come from, I think and the trowels, as well as names and dates. And basically, they were also saying, just like their historic counterparts, I was here. So it's interesting that between the mason marks and the other marks, it's kind of like I was here versus a practical point, which is I made this. I think that's quite an interesting thing. But um, there are other marks that we could be talking about, because back in episode 83, we talked about witchcraft and witch marks. So does Kirby Hall have any of these marks? And could you also explain, for people who don't know what a witch mark is and what it's meant to represent, can you describe what that is? Yes, of course. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this before I get in trouble with other graffiti researchers, that we don't tend to use the term witch marks, actually, it, because it seems to be a little bit misleading. The marks don't really have much to do with witches. Instead, they refer to a more complex set of beliefs than this term would suggest. Instead, they're used, they're marks which are used to avert, ward off, turn away or entrap evil or evil spirits. So instead, they're commonly referred to as ritual protection marks or apotropaic graffiti, coming from the Greek word apotropaeus, meaning to avert evil. And there are examples of potential protection marks at Kirby Hall, which include pentagrams or five-pointed star. And these can be found in the porch and around the windows in the Great Hall and Lobby. And in modern times, the pentagram has been thought of, is often thought of as a symbol of occultists or Satanists. But rather than representing any evil connotations, interestingly, the pentangle was previously considered a symbol of protection and a way of actually averting evil. So they would use the symbol in order to do that, to ward off these evil spirits. And these kind of ritual protection marks are usually found near entranceways, such as doors, windows or fireplaces, 
where evil spirits could enter into the building or the room. And that's where we find them at Kirby Hall, where they're in the porch and near the windows. So these evil spirits, when trying to enter, the belief was that they would be trapped within these symbols, these graffiti, as they had endless lines that the spirits couldn't escape from. Yes. Are they sort of spiral marks? Is that right? So you get lots of different types of apotropaic graffiti. So you get uh, the pentangle. There's a Solomon's Knot, for example, where there's actually a Solomon's Knot at Deal Castle near a fireplace as well. So there's a whole variety. There's even taper burn marks also get considered under graffiti. And this is where someone would burn part of the building, just leave a little bit of a smoke mark behind with the idea of warding off any further uh, fire damage happening to the site or that particular building. Hmm. Really interesting. So that's a complex belief system, isn't it, really? But I suppose the idea is that at any entrance to the building, they can get sucked away, basically, through these markings. Yeah, you're trapping them in the mark so they can't cause uh, any harm to you or the building itself. Are any of the, the graffiti detailed enough to reveal detailed stories about the lives of the people who would have left the marks? There are, yeah, there are a few at Kirby Hall that you can use if they've left enough information. So if someone's left a full name, maybe a date and a place, it's really, um, it's much easier to be able to trace the mark maker. So there's an example of this that's actually included in the interpretation and that was found actually by a visitor to the site a few years ago who record, uh, who researched it themselves. And that's of William Bennett and Lacey Colbert Richards who both left graffiti on the same pillar in the cloister when they visited on Tuesday, 17th of August, 1880. So the, the graffiti are W. Bennett, Aundel, 1880, August 17th, and Elsie Richards, Aundel, August 17th, 1880. They both lived in Aundel and were born in 1860, so would have been about 20 years old when visiting Kirby Hall. Uh, right, young lovers, perhaps? I think they were... F- I- well, I'd probably think that they were, um, so Lacey was actually a man, I should point out. Um, but that doesn't stop them from being lovers at all. But I think that they were friends. We kind of think of them as these two local lads that decided to leave their mark to commemorate their visit and become part of the history of Kirby Hall. And so it's just a really interesting story of these two local young men who came, whatever their relationship was to one another, on this visit to Kirby Hall, this romantic ruin, and decided to say, yes, I was here at the site at this time. What about mystery graffiti? Is there any that really causes you to scratch your head and just go, what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, there is. There's quite a bit. As much as analysing graffiti can reveal further information about a site's history, it can also raise many interesting questions. An example of this came when I was looking at a door from the 1670s on display in the pallet chamber, where a variety of 19th century graffiti could be found written in French. And I really didn't expect to find this at all. The site staff hadn't known about it either and includes a number of inscriptions of people's names and dates but as well as a few interesting marks in French that say for example loosely translated to the devil coming home here with his wife and the devil and his children danced here beautifully and when I spoke talked to people about these some have suggested maybe their stories or they're from nursery rhymes or songs and another suggestion is maybe it was the agent potentially talking about the family you don't know But lots of questions are raised about who left these graffiti, who were they referring to, and who did they think was the the devil of Kirby Hall? I don't know. It sounds like, to me at least, it sounds like the French worker, I presume, is likening the boss to the devil. But who knows? Yeah, that's what Um, I think it potentially is. An agent maybe who who knew French and was talking about the family coming back, maybe. But we can't say for certain, unfortunately. But um, where we've got some clearer marks of graffiti is is Richmond Castle. There's plenty there. And if you've listened to episode 119, you'll have heard that 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 property in in North Yorkshire, in northern England, has um, graffiti that was left in the 20th century. So broadly speaking, Kevin, you you mentioned uh, Richmond. Who left this graffiti? We're talking primarily here about a military cell block that was built in the 1850s at Richmond and is obviously still standing And largely, the people who left that graffiti were soldiers, whether those being detained or those who were guarding or those who were otherwise using that building. So we we see graffiti from as early, I think, as probably the late 1850s with little drawings of of a chap in his militia uniform through to the pre-First World War when we have a, a Major Hume who's counting his tins. The building was obviously used as a storehouse at the time. 
There's a whole sequence of graffiti by conscientious objectors who were imprisoned, imprisoned in the cells in 1916, and for which the cell block is that's largely how it's known through these conscientious objectors. But then we see graffiti in the interwar period, people who are simply visiting the castle and get access to cells. There's a, a lady, Ina Stewart, from the nearby village of Barton, who we learn is a, a nurse in your castle and goes out to nurse in the Far East before the Second World War. There's an explosion of graffiti in 1939-40. Green Howards have access to this building. I suspect that they're having a crafty fag at a game of darts rather than doing anything useful, and they sort of just populate the walls with a riot of material. But it goes all the way up to the 1970s. There's a there's a, a local council worker whose name I will not say. As I understand, the gentleman's a little embarrassed about having left his name five times on the inside of the cells where the council stored their lawnmowers and their spare benches. It's an extraordinary record, and in some ways quite distinct from what Emma was talking about with Kirby, there are a lot of lot of parallels, but the graffiti at Richmond, I suppose because it's an enclosed building and people probably were in there for whatever reason for some time, it's a very involved record. You get long transcriptions from the Bible or from hymns. You get quite complex diagrams and landscapes drawn. We have some mysteries at Richmond as well. There are some, particularly some sort of non-conformist religious iconography that we as yet haven't really been able to unpick or to attribute to a particular branch of the Christian faith. So it's a very varied quite complex but utterly riveting assemblage of material. How many examples of markings would you put it down to there? Emma beats us slightly, I'm afraid, with Kirby, but this one building has about 2,300. But if we look across the whole of the site, across the 12th century keep and the, and the, and the walls of the rest of the site, you see that pattern very similar to what Emma was describing in terms of visitors, tourists, other people have occupied the site who are leaving the initials and the dates and the location. How well have these markings survived given the broad stretch of time that they cover? Well, I suppose you'd say they've survived remarkably well given the very, very fragile surfaces they're written on. We're talking about a very hastily erected building in the 1850s using some pretty aggressive materials, you know, hardened cement and then very delicate lime wash surfaces which have been written on in pencil and those lime wash surfaces would like nothing better than to flake and crumble and fall from the walls. So the cell block is, well, it, it's a conservation project I think that EH should be very proud of in terms of trying to understand how that building behaves and try to understand how we can best give it a stability in an environment that retains a 100-year-old lime wash in the place where it was painted. So some have been fading then, based on what you described there? Yes, like Emma was talking about the plaster uh, work at Kirby, we've lost, on one particular elevation, most of the graffiti that ever had been written there. Fortunately, as early as the late 1980s, people started making record photographs, so we've got a sense of what was on those walls. At the moment, fingers crossed, we're quite stable. We're not seeing a great deal of loss. We talked about the Richmond 16 in episode 119 as well. This was the group of the conscientious objectors that you talked about, Mm. and they were around during the First World War objecting to the conflict. What messages did they leave whilst they were prisoners at Richmond? This goes back to, I suppose, what we were talking about earlier about why do people leave messages and that, that sense of communicating, and particularly then with these conscientious objectors, it seems to be communicating their beliefs, communicating, almost writing out on the wall the things that they're verbalising in their own head about why we're doing this, reaffirming their commitment to the cause that they've made. Now, that might be from a religious point of view, thou shalt not kill, the transcribing of, as I said, hymns, and Bible passages, but also iconography uh, such as Christ on the cross. But then on the other side of the conscientious objectors are the socialists, the people who believe that the only war worth fighting is, is the class war, and socialists of the world should stand united. There's a couple of versions of the red flag on there, quite a lot of ILP, Independent Labour Party initials put down there. So, But it's what's interesting again about that 1916 period is the is the sort of literacy the literate record educated hand 
educated knowledge and understanding and learning is poured out onto these walls where often you see in graffiti perhaps quite a history and, and, and less literate account. I suppose people will want to know if they don't know from having heard episode 119, what did happen to the Richmond 16 who were held there? Well, the 16 were 16 of probably over 200 absolutist objectors who were held at one time or other in that cell block. The 16 were some of the earliest people who refused point blank to have anything to do with the actions of the First World War, despite having been given a conditional exemption not to have to fight. They still felt that wearing a uniform, carrying out a drill, even peeling potatoes for an officer class was a contribution to the war they weren't willing to make. And they were they were shipped out to France in early June of 1916. There were 35 from across the country in total sent to France. And they were put in to the theatre of war, effectively. So it goes from military discipline at Richmond, well, here's 48 hours bread and water in the cell block, it goes to a court-martial situation because you're you're disobeying military instruction in the theatre of war, and they were they were sentenced to death. They were court-martialed and sentenced to death in the middle of a 19th-century fort in Boulogne, which was thankfully commuted to at first ten years hard labour, but effectively turned into civilian imprisonment, often solitary for the rest of the war. And as we now understand, many hundreds of people in the First World War. Well, somewhere over 20,000 people sought exemption from fighting and many hundreds were imprisoned for their absolutist stance. There's a real emotional contrast then in the English Heritage Collection of graffiti then between Richmond Castle and Kirby Hall, where you might have, say, predominantly tourist-type etchings at Kirby Hall and then you have these desperate people with their strong beliefs at Richmond Castle. There's a real contrast there, isn't there? There absolutely is. and But you do see... Beyond that sort of belief system of conscientious objectors, whether faith-based or, or based on socialism, you also see very strong sense of attachment as well, regimental numbers, regimental crests, the drawings of the places that you remember, that, you're, that you were, you know, you're fond of, even if you're in a, a cell at, at Richmond waiting to be sent out to the front in the Second World War, you're, you're drawing the picture of home, you're remembering your youth and the things that, um, the things that you're attached to. Very varied collection of graffiti then really across the portfolio of more than 400 English heritage sites. Has the perception of graffiti then changed over the centuries? Who wants to answer that first? Emma? Yeah, I can have a go answering that. And it's definitely changed over the centuries. So now in the in the 21st century, uh, in the present day, graffiti is commonly viewed, often not always, as an antisocial vandalistic act. But it's worth noting that this wasn't the case in the past. So Juliet Fleming has noted that in early modern England, for example, there was no term to denote graffiti text and differentiate it from other forms of writing and stated that it was not a fact to suggest that the vice was unknown, but the activity was not distinguished from other writing practices and not yet considered a vice. And it really only seems to be around the 19th century that the act of graffiti, rather than the message of the mark, was seen to be more of a problem. So the idea of graffiti being left was becoming an increasing issue. And it's also worth noting that the term graffiti is from the 19th century, created in the 1850s as an archaeological term, created in reaction to finding the graffiti at the ancient site of Pompeii in Italy. So they needed a word to talk about the inscriptions there, and that's where the the word graffiti comes from. And then now into the, the 20th and 21st century, it's kind of got some more negative connotations, unfortunately. But even that has, has shifted, actually. We can kind of see the rise of street art in the last two decades and, and the Banksy effect, where graffiti is now viewed as, as being even more complex and resists any singular definition. But it has shifted and changed. It all depends on the context of the marks and the understanding perceptions of graffiti practices as informed by historical, social and cultural factors at the time that the mark is made. What do you think of that um, very erudite and PhD-style interpretation, Kevin? I'd say that's why we invited Emma onto this podcast recording, is what I'd say to that. <laughs> yes, no, it's very comprehensive, definitely. What about the current laws? What do they say about graffiti? 
Graffiti is now considered an act of criminal damage. And this is in the UK, obviously. Yeah, this is in the UK. So it's very complex. It depends where you're talking about. So in the UK, the act of graffiti specifically is criminal damage under the Criminal Damage Act of 1971. There are further acts that have reinforced this. It's important to, to mention that also that hateful graffiti, there can be some really horrible graffiti that can target minoritized groups is considered a hate crime as well. And those that are created on heritage assets, such as scheduled monuments, uh, listed buildings, world heritage sites or conservation areas are also constituted as a heritage crime. And you can get in a lot of trouble if you do leave graffiti to this day and you're found having left graffiti. Yes, we have talked about heritage crime on a previous episode to do with archaeology and and that sort of thing. And that's that's quite interesting, isn't it? That earlier conversation about the most modern graffiti on our sites and the idea of the layering that graffiti gives you. And and if you if you stop that, if you stop that layering, are you, is it almost sort of an artificial intervention into the way history develops? But our sites are scheduled monument sites. That, that it is an offence to damage those as well as being you know offense graffiti being offense for more generally of criminal damage so in a sense we have no option but to refrain from and to remove any graffiti that does come across our sites so the 2021 marking at kirby hall by the family is a heritage crime fundamentally it is and um you know i i wonder i mean emma's observed this and and i suppose if uh, if our property curators took on board that that existed they might formally ask for it to be removed basically new graffiti on old properties is a, her- is a heritage crime whereas old graffiti on old properties was permissible because prior to the 1970s there was no law marking them out to say that this was criminal and Emma, in a way, you're saying not just permissible, but at some time, at some periods, almost day to day, you know, almost expected the norm. Yeah, at some sites, it was fairly common. What would cause us to be shocked now was common every day. So, for example, one visitor to Stonehenge in 1871 even complained that the constant chipping of the stone broke the solitude of the place. And you can't imagine someone leaving graffiti on Stonehenge now, but it became a thing. Lots more visitors were able to access the site and were leaving their names and their marks or taking a piece away from them. But it was becoming a, a seen as a growing issue towards the end of the 19th century when heritage legislation was being introduced. And Simon Thurley has talked about how the first successful prosecution for damage to an ancient monument in England actually took place in 1906 at Castle Rig Stone Circle, which is in Cumbria, northwest England, which was defaced. And the prosecution was aided by the fact that the graffitist, the mark maker, had actually carved both their name and their address onto the standing stones so they could be found. So people were seeing it as an issue when it was becoming more commonplace. It was a thing of actually we need to be protecting these places and people, not everyone can be, we can't be defacing them anymore. So it sounds really from what we've been discussing that really uh, history and historic markings should be left on these buildings as they are, but also be left in the past. And any further contemporary markings should not happen because of potential consequences in court and with the law. Yes, I think that's a stance that we have to take. There will always be some graffiti, perhaps like the family record in the in the flu at Kirby that will make it through and it, graffiti in many ways is an archaeological record and archaeology is about chance survival in many ways so in 50 years time people will still be finding graffiti from the next five decades from now that has found its way through mm. I think just and do, I was going to say Emma do, do you think these legal protections that are in place currently for historic buildings and monuments are enough to deter contemporary markings of these centuries-old objects? I mean, I think they are. For the most part, it seems that a lot of people aren't leaving them. In fact, when I've talked to people when I've been recording, they'll say, oh, the naughty people. And you have to say, actually, in the past, it it wasn't seen to be naughty, but it is now. So people do recognise many that fact. And we can also think about the fact that there's, there's different ways now that you can mark your presence when visiting sites. So you can take a photo of yourself or you can take a selfie. And you, you can say in that way, I was here, which is effectively what people, tourist graffiti, at least people were doing in the past. Or just, just have a look for what old historic graffiti you can find. It, it gets quite addictive, actually. But just have a look around and, and do that instead of leaving your mark. Yes. And are there visitor books at some properties, Kevin? 
There are. We've got visitor books that go back, you know, into the early part of the 20th century and you get some very entertaining characters that crop up in them. I mean, probably less so now that we have visitor books. I think it is, it's the digital, it's the social media, it's the, leave the, it's the hashtag that allows people to record their presence and what they felt much in the same way as this graffiti that we've been talking about has been doing for several centuries. Lastly then, how important is historic graffiti in revealing the stories of the people who lived in or visited these sites? And can it tell us something that other historic sources can't? For example, if if a website goes down, then those hashtags are pretty redundant, aren't they? Yes, though, if the plaster falls off the wall, so is the graffiti. It's all subject to fate in a way. I find graffiti that often in-the-moment expression and the location and how you can try and picture why the person has chosen this location, what they were looking out across. You know, were they looking carefully over their soldier to, shoulder to see who was looking at them? Or you can people the sites. You can you can humanize the sites as well through this record in a way that photography has its own contribution. Archival records have their own contribution. Graffiti brings another quality to the way you can picture and and the narratives you can create on those sites. It's about creating another layer to stories of places and putting people in those places. It is, but I mean, I think, Emma, you, you feel also in terms of the type of person, the type of individual that crops up, graffiti has a as a as a strong contribution yeah i think you can kind of use graffiti as, as a starting point sometimes to learn about kind of maybe stories that would otherwise maybe be hidden from history at least these formal narratives at, at the sites so this might be working class stories that might not be known about as much or or focused upon and they can really prove to be a starting point for that research and interpretation so finding about about people's thoughts ideas opinions or reflections, or just their mark of their presence, that they were there. And you can follow that up with further research. And there's something with graffiti about the fact that it's so, it's physical, it's, it's tangible. Although we don't want you to touch it because it can damage it, the fact that it is there, there's something really special about that. You're standing in the same moment that that person was in the past. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll trace the Roman story in Britain to where it all started, Richborough Roman Fort. Settlement continued right to the end of the Roman period. So it would appear that Roman Richborough is flourishing right through the Roman period, which is something quite remarkable and something brilliant for us to have learned. Thanks for listening. See you next time.